This evening's talk is about wise concentration. (coughs) And we'll begin uh, the discussion this evening with three Pali words. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being essential and indispensable, the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight. These form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities are capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanent nature of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly, mental, and physical occurrences, and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead us on to the final liberating wisdom. And as I think pretty much all of you, if not all of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddha's teachings. It's one of the seven factors of awakening and those being mindfulness, excuse me, mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of uh, what are called the five controlling faculties, which are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom which, when fully developed, become the five spiritual powers. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana, without the support of samatha, or concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect her, or protect him. 
In the Buddha's words, as he often uh, did, he starts with a question and then uh, he goes on to answer it. So one of the questions that he asked often is, if concentration, samatha or samadhi in Pali, or in Sanskrit, samatha is the Pali word, if concentration is developed, what profit does it bring? And then he answers his question. The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, all greed is abandoned. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, all ignorance is abandoned. And so, concentration, samatha meditation and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular, alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, our exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on deeper and more profound levels, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline and behavior is the basis for developing samatha or samadhi or concentration. Samatha refers not only uh, to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our habits, our often long-standing habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation and attachment, and our long-standing, often long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind 
are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering. And the Pali word for this is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from uh, developing uh, a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, California, Canada, Iraq, hummingbirds, dogs, thoughts, rain, (laughs) feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, (laughs) American Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. Each of which are rooted in mindfulness and concentration. In speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta, Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and or some questions, or a question, and the Buddha responds, answers it, responds to it. So Ananda says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity 
as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation, the consummation of freedom from suffering. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience. And often from some of our most difficult experiences. And sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes. As well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of concentration, samatha or samadhi. The unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all (coughs) Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind rather than allowing it to be 
uh, carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in on it from any of the six sense doors or from our own unconscious. So in light of this, we can ask ourselves a question. Does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? So, for instance, if your intention is to uh, keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. And one of the very wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a certain chosen object is a skill that can be learned. And like any other skill, it's learned by practice, patient repetition, and a gradual development. The Vesudhimaga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process uh, of this development and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these uh, metaphors with you. The first one, the bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, and then absorbing into it. So a metaphor for what we'll explore a little bit more in a few minutes, preliminary access and absorption, concentration. Another metaphor offered in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience with uh, making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and very relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy. Totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with the continued focus of clear, connected, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay, at the same time as being informed by it. 
as a ball forms. So really, uh, uh, graphic and visceral, uh, uh, particularly the second one, uh, metaphors for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, learning to move into uh, a focused, deepening experience of concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm. Really quite an energizing and refreshing and potentially beautiful experience. Because of our exploration this evening being primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of concentration, samatha, I think it would be helpful for us to begin to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, a simple example, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils, or the sensations of the rising and falling of the in breath and out breath in the abdominal area. And if you're anxious, worried, or filled with expectation during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Why? Because worry and expectation enslave us when we get involved with them. 
when the practice of, uh, with the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought. In this case, meaning to not be seduced by thought. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem so important in any given moment. And it's important, very important to note here that it isn't about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion, an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Because our mind, our complicated minds, (laughs) can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions. Thinking that whatever it is, is really very, very important. You know what I mean. (laughs) Well, I had such an experience um, during a three-month retreat that uh, I sat that was uh, devoted to the development of concentration. And this was a number of years ago. For the first week or so, of uh, this retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea, taking two or three different loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball. A a seemingly very important and very necessary treat that I needed, that I certainly wanted. (laughs) Towards the end of that week, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter. That was one of the same teas that I uh, was putting into my fancy mix. It had been sitting there all along, but the mind hadn't connected uh, to it with a clear awareness until that moment. And so the thought came, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is it really important? Well, the answer came pretty quick. Nope, nope, it's not at all important. It's merely habitual distraction. So from that day forward, I made a simple cup of tea with a tea bag and drank it with pleasure. What happened after this was what was really important in relationship to my practice. Quite spontaneously at times, throughout the rest of the three-month retreat, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and thought patterns. 
And the response, the answer to that question was almost always, if not after a while, pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. I mean, it wasn't an instant process. It took a while. (laughs) So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occur through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration. And for some people, at some point, it might be also uh, jhana, the development of concentration is described as the purification of the mind. And so again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm, and concentration seriously weakens the, all the hindrances, all these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, a kind of contentment and peace and equanimity, these are the fruits of concentration practice, when they are clearly manifesting for a moment or more, unwholesome states of mind are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. So, taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the blossoming of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the heart, free the mind from impurities and various inner obstacles, giving the mind then a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention 
again and again to a particular object. And the word for this in Pali is vitaka. And then with the establishment of the mind, with the establishment of the attention on an object, again, for instance, such as the rising and falling movement in the belly of the breath or the sensations of the in and out breath in the nostril area, this eventually, temporarily, eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness, the sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on an object. Again, as an example such as the breath. In Pali, this word for this is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice and weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joy, joyful zest, a kind of bright happiness, a kind of elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of heart and mind. And the Pali word for this is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention. Again, such as the breath, just as an example. And with the development and the deepening of concentration, resulting in varying degrees and varying permutations of piti, when this happens, ill will is temporarily eliminated. It's inhibited, inhibited, we could say. And going on, the deeply concentrated state of bliss, a contentment, sweet, easeful happiness, and the Pali word for this is sukha, which actually in its maturity isn't a pleasant bodily experience, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, ikagata is the Pali word for this, with this occurring to, occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and mindfulness, this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive, energetic sense of centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is at bay, it's inhibited. As samadhi, as concentration develops and as it moves along, 
the states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind, when at least some of, of this has been clearly let go of, temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, at that time, we really truly know and gain a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to our own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to one's particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and a wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, and this next part's very important, without any attachment and without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind <clears throat> eventually <clears throat> become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, they are they're removed. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, again, very important, without any attachment and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. 
and on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's own ability to resist, or we could say deflect, the influence of raga. Raga being the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion and often used synonymously with greed, unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, or clinging, which really is the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this uh, aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being, of course, that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen and will be aware of a provocative sense input, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or water rolling off the feathers of a duck. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that uh, can be developed and that also very much serve our insight practice. And the first of these is called kanaka samadhi, kanika samadhi in Pali, or translated to momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of our ability to focus on one object after another, after another, after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of One's momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. It's essential for vipassana practice. The second type or level of concentration is called in Pali upachara samadhi or access concentration or sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Or it can be used before going, even going to jhana at all, if it's developed. 
Excess concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of absorption concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. Meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana or absorption concentration. With upachara or access concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice, as I've already mentioned. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time, unwholesome mind states are considerably weakened in the long run, as they are all through the development of concentration, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana, it's only through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of concentration quite naturally takes place in our vipassana, our insight practice, particularly as we've looked at a little bit momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment, and identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's really not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration very well may require many, many months or even many years of single, single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours each day. And this certainly may be impractical for some people. For others, it may be possible and may be worthwhile in moving toward the discoveries, we could say, that 
lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep spaces of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being really clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and uh, potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking. It's said that the Bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood, appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual in that time and culture marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene that was unfolding before him with an open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. He noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the sharp 
strong shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned soil. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on, beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him. And in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add and nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and from unwholesome states, taking this all in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that, following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and a sureness that this, in fact, was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point of the Buddha-to-be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for liberation. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, 
the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, fear, hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them, or by trying to live through them, by stealing, by hardening oneself, and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling, by trying hard to let go of painful states of mind related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did, at least for a while, that these situations fantasies, activities, or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially a certain degree of mental strength can be gained with this approach. And we all have experienced these things. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can really never be seen, felt, or known with this way as the ongoing way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would really never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart that's secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances, the hindrances of lethargy, and restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence and detachment 
that it's not only okay, but that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart and a mind that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta came to understand that the development of concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed in his discourses to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl. And he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka and says that by being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words, but such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, He tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, uh, purified mind is something that Siddhartha wandered into, so to say the world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or to run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most all of us. We so often have a mind made up, and often quite absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, or isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true, 
And we also often have a mind quite made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility. Keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment's experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and the practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom, understanding, insight. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, is beautiful, healing, and powerful in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. Our practice is about the unification of samatha, and vipassana. And as the Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace says, the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana, by itself, provides only fleeting glimpses of reality.
And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later after the story about the Buddha's life that I uh, shared just uh, took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift of clarity, of the clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. Closing the talk this evening with another Mary Oliver poem (laughs) that speaks to this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. The poem is uh, a bit out of season here in this New England winter. (laughs) But I encourage uh, each of you to make the shift internally to a more spring-like environment (laughs) as we take in Mary Oliver's poem. She titles this poem, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade, with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree. And I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. 
It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that's true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees around you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening together (coughs) chanting the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.